0: The reading today comes from Luke 2. I'm going to read 8 through 14. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Messiah, the Lord. And this will be assigned to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to whom his favor rests. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Just going to make sure that it's, it's on. Um, before, we, uh, before I jump into the sermon, I'm going to ask uh, Dana Staley to come on up. Uh, many of you have been reading the news uh, of what's going on in Israel-Palestine in the wake of the President's decision, and so we just wanted to um, give a time of prayer. Um, Dana, her family is originally from Palestine, and Dana's part of, uh, been part of teams that have been over, I think Betty as well, and then Sarah Burback as well, and a few others um, have been part of that, and so we wanted to just take a moment to, to pray um, for the situation over there.
0: Lord, we are wrestling today with the recent announcement by the president declaring Jerusalem the capital of Israel and the violence that has ensued between your children, both Palestinians and Israelis. We know this is a city fraught with a complicated history of violence. Today, your Palestinian children face daily discrimination and the threat of basic human rights, including the misrepresentation of their stories. Likewise, your Israeli children have a fear of conflict with their Palestinian neighbor and still face discrimination based on anti-Semitism that they have endured for countless years. We lift up these histories and the tension that exists in the city of Jerusalem. We know you're in the midst of it and take comfort in your presence there throughout history and today. We pray for the safety and security for Israelis and Palestinians. And we pray for courage, for fresh dialogue and empathy between the two groups that are too often separated by misunderstanding and conflict. We pray for Israeli and Palestinian leaders to move beyond the president's declaration to work together towards peace and reconciliation. We pray for the little children of Israel and Palestine and ask you to shelter them from perpetrating the violent cycle of hate and discrimination that they've been subjected to. Lord, protect their childhoods and innocence. And lastly, we thank you for the courageous Israeli and Palestinian peacemakers on the ground who are actively involved in the challenging and controversial work of peacemaking. Please strengthen and embolden them to continue your work despite this fresh challenge and fill them with your Holy Spirit. May they go forward in peace and encourage those around them to join in the only way forward, your way of nonviolence, forgiveness, and love. Amen.
1: So, um, today is the second Sunday of Advent. Um, as mentioned earlier, it's the season in which we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus. It's a season marked by waiting and anticipation. And, uh, and I want to start by giving you a heads up that uh, at the end of the service, we'll be providing you with the opportunity uh, to participate in our annual Advent offering. Um, It's become a tradition for us each year for the past four years. As a church we've taken up an offering during the Advent season and given it all away to organizations in our city and in our world that are working for the common good. And so this year we're going to give to organizations that have been in a very real way keeping vigil, which is the theme of our season series. Uh, First we're going to be giving to Little Lights. Little Lights is led by our friend Steve Park who preached here earlier this year. Um, Little Lights works in our neighborhoods here in DC uh, to provide holistic ministry and services to kids and families living in poverty through after-school programs and summer programs, mentoring, economic empowerment education, on-the-job training, and more. And then secondly, we'll be giving to Paz y Esperanza, or Peace and Hope International, led by our friend Nina Balmaceda who preached here earlier this fall. Um, Paz was formed in the wake of violence in Peru, uh, and now works for peace and justice in several countries in Latin America. Uh, both organizations have been active for over two decades. Um, which was part of our criteria in in thinking about who we wanted to give to. We wanted to support folks who had kept vigil faithfully and persistently, who had kept watch over the gospel in the spaces and places God had given them to care for. So those are the two uh, organizations that we'll be supporting through the Advent offering. And I'll I'll go over the practical instructions uh, again later, but uh, I'll sort of uh, give an intro to them now. Um, the Advent offering is open now, and it will be re- remain open until the end of the month. You can use one of the uh, um, uh, envelopes that should be on your seat, or around you, or under your seat, or you know, steal your neighbors. Actually, don't do that. Get another one. <laughs> um, but there you, sh- you can use one of the Advent offering envelopes if you're ready to, to give by check your cash this morning, or you can write the amount that you're willing to pledge, and we'll follow up with you later this week and send you a link um, to give online. Um, you'll have the opportunity to, to put this, uh, this envelope in the offering baskets when they come around later in the service, uh, or you can just go to the website christcitydc.org give, select Advent Offering from the drop-down menu, and you can give online. Um, also, the Kids City will be participating in the Advent Offering through their annual bake sale, um, so that's going to be right outside post-service um, in conjunction with the community lunch, so um, feel free to... Buy your desserts and support the kids and their efforts and, their, and the Advent offering as well. Um, so that's the, the Advent offering. Uh, we'd love for you to be a part of it. We'd love for this to be once more a collective reminder that we are more together than we are apart. Uh, that we can do more together uh, that we can do than we can do on our own. Uh, so before I, I jump into the sermon, let me just say a, a prayer for, the, for that and for, for those two organizations. God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for the uh, opportunities that you give us to support others. And we pray for Little Lights and Steve and Mary. Uh, We pray for Pazzi Esperanza and Nina and her team. And we just pray, uh, God, we know that the work of keeping vigil is hard, um, can be discouraging at times. And so we pray for encouragement. We pray that your spirit would strengthen them, give them boldness, and remind them of the call that you have placed on their lives and the call that you have given their organizations. We give you thanks for them, for the witness that they bear um, to your gospel and the example that they set for us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Alright, so uh, you may already know this, but traditionally there are four Advent virtues, hope, peace, joy, and love. And uh, depending on the liturgical year, we might consider them in a particular order. Um, Here at Christ City Church this year, we are displaying our roguish non-denominational colors by going out of order. But we're doing it in order. See what I did there? In order to try to follow the passage. Thank you. (laughs) I'll take what I can get. Uh, We're doing it in order to try to follow the passage uh, that we're focusing on this month, which is is Luke 2, uh, verses 8 through 14, which Andrea read earlier. The story of the shepherds in the fields. And to recap, our our series is called Keeping Vigil. Keeping Vigil. We wanted to mirror the posture of those shepherds 2,000 years ago, keeping watch over their flocks. In particular, we wanted to consider the question of what it means and what it looks like for us here in DC in the 21st century, at the end of a tumultuous and very full year, to keep vigil over hope and love, joy and peace. And so, following along with the passage, the, vo- the verse I'll be focusing on today is Luke 2, verse 10, which reads But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And so, today we're going to look at keeping vigil over joy. Keeping vigil over joy. Now, to begin with, I want you to turn to your neighbor for a moment and answer this question What are the little things that make you happy? What are the little things that make you happy? Okay, I'm looking, before you start, I'm looking for more simple answers, okay? Less meta, less Christian-y, like Kingdom of God on Earth answers, and more like warm towels fresh from the dryer or the Oxford comma. Okay, I'm gonna give you two minutes. Go. All right, let's uh, let's bring it back together. What are some of the little things that make you happy that you're willing to share publicly? Coffee. Coffee. Football, fuzzy blankets, cats, fast Wi-Fi, fast Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> cupcakes, cupcakes. <Yes. laughs> double cupcakes. Ben and Justin, Henry, oh, can you please stand up? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I already mentioned two. You want any any of the others? Okay. So, So I already mentioned a couple of mine, warm towels fresh from the dryer and the Oxford comma. Uh, Actually, properly used punctuation is sort of on the border for me between like a little thing that makes me happy and like a minor obsession. Um, But uh, if, and this is just sort of a side note, if you're looking for a, a gift for a grammar nerd like me, this book eats, shoots, and leaves. The Zero Tolerance Approach to Punctuation. Has anyone else read this? So good. Anyway, that makes me happy. Um, You already may know of my love for dim sum, that's a little thing that makes me very happy. Uh, A cooked breakfast on a lazy morning, especially a full English breakfast. Uh, Eggs, sausages, mushrooms, baked beans, and fried bread. Uh, Food in general, food in general. Um, A freshly cut lawn, playing soccer on a cool evening. And I know that uh, JR's uh, idea of hell is probably a winter wonderland, but first snow of the year for me is, is the little thing that makes me happy. Um, <laughs> taking a nap because I can and not because I have to. Uh, and then there's this time of year, uh, including Advent, but really starting around my birthday in mid-November. Uh, the leaves start changing color, the weather starts taking a turn for the cool and the crisp, there's my birthday, and then there's Thanksgiving, my favorite holiday, food, and then there's Christmas decorations and Christmas music at the appropriate time. <laughs> the lights go up, and the days get shorter. Um, and even though the calendar may fill up with social engagements and closing out end-of-year projects, for me there's a sense of completeness, like writing the last words on a page before starting a new chapter. And then, of course, celebrating Christmas, celebrating the birth of Jesus, that's pretty great. And then celebrating the birth of my wife Carolyn right afterwards. Um, Those things make me happy this season, this time of year. But today I don't just want to talk about the things that make me or make us happy. Um, I want to talk about joy, because I think that most of us would agree that joy feels like a more substantive word than happiness, that joy is a more substantive concept than happiness. And so I want to talk about how we keep vigil over joy. Keeping vigil as Lisa shared last week is staying awake, particularly when others are asleep. And especially for devotional purposes, it's it's an intentional observance, it's a guarding. And so the question I want to look at today is, how do we intentionally observe joy? How do we guard joy in our lives and in our world? How do we keep joy alive in the midst of all that's going on around us? Because there's quite a bit going on, isn't there? I was just talking this week with a, a friend who's a worship director at a large church, and when I told her I was preaching about joy, she laughed and said, you mean that thing we're supposed to have this time of year? The holiday season can be crazy. There is often a lot going on, a lot to do, a lot of of folks who are asking or maybe demanding something of you. Maybe you're getting ready for holiday travel with all that entails, making sure everything's good before you go, making sure everything's as good as it can be before you get there. Maybe you're excited about seeing family, but also particularly if you're an introvert wondering where you'll find the space to breathe and hear your own thoughts. Maybe you're anxious about seeing family because of a particular relational dynamic or or some history. Maybe this will be the first Christmas without someone you love, whether because of uh, a breakup or a bereavement. There can be an expectation that we're supposed to feel certain things at this time of year, isn't there? But there's a lot going on in other ways too. Uh, earlier, uh, we prayed for our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem and the Middle East, for our friends in the region working for peace and justice. Uh, I'm also thinking of friends in California, friends we're connected with who have been affected by the devastating wildfires. You may have seen some of the, the videos or the pictures on social media. Uh, the first responders who are going toward and going into those places of danger. We remember. Uh, Houston and Puerto Rico, and who are still recovering from from hurricanes that have hit them hard. For many, they won't get to spend Christmas in their homes. We think of refugees as well. Um, On top of that, a few days ago, uh, Time Magazine named as their person of the year for 2017 the Silence Breakers, the women and men who boldly spoke up about sexual harassment and assault who refuse to stay silent any longer, not just for themselves, but for others as well, including the generations to come. And for me going through this year reading and hearing the stories following hashtag uh, me too, and then more recently hashtag church uh, my heart has been both encouraged at the strength of those choosing to tell their stories and also grieved at the reality of those stories at what actually happened, at what was shamed into the shadows, at the toxicity of power abused. And it's not just out there, is it? It's it's here, too. It's friends and loved ones. It's folks in our community who are still healing and grieving, still figuring out if it's worth the energy and the effort to say something. And for me, it's led to conversations about you know what, what healthy masculinity looks like and boundaries in dating and how we address privilege and power and inequality, how we heal from personal trauma, how we forgive and name the sin, and of course, what the gospel and what Jesus has to say about all of this. A couple months ago, preaching on grief and lament, I shared that this year has been a hard one. We obviously had the church transition, and a lot of things came with that. And there's tremendous joy, and there's also some anger, and there's a lot of sadness. And then as I look down the road a few miles to Capitol Hill and the White House, as I consider some of the words that have been said and the actions that have been taken by those in power that can seem so inhumane, taking from the poor and giving to the rich, keeping out the immigrants and refugees, stoking racial division and economic inequality, inflammatory actions rather than peacemaking ones. And while I've been encouraged, while it's given me hope to see folks become engaged and aware and woke in a way that they haven't been before, there's also, there's always a tendency to become cynical about all of it. To wonder if any of it is worth the effort, to shrug my shoulders in the face of sin and suffering and pain because they'll always be around and maybe if I don't hope too much or if I don't expect too much, I won't be so disappointed or angry or frustrated when the inevitable happens. Maybe that's where you are when it comes to your faith, or what used to be at one time at least somewhat recognizable as a faith. Now though, for whatever reason, you've drifted into a place where you're wondering if God is even real, or if the Bible has anything to say to us today, or if the Holy Spirit is just an imaginary friend, or if faith actually makes any difference at all, or if you'll ever feel, if you'll ever know deep down the presence of God. In faith and in life, it's tempting to slide into cynicism. I'm reminded of something uh, comedian Stephen Colbert said once years ago when he was giving the commencement address at Knox College in Illinois. He said, cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but it's the farthest thing from it because cynics don't learn anything. Because cynicism is a self-imposed blindness, a rejection of the world because we're afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. I think that's right. I think that's a good and necessary reminder. Uh, I also have Stephen Colbert to thank for this next quote. Um, In an interview again from a number of years ago, he revealed that he has this next quote on his desk, and so for the last few years, I've had this same quote on my desk. It's from the, the French priest and mystic Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, and it says, Joy is the most infallible sign of the presence of God. Joy is the most infallible sign of the presence of God. The Bible is full of joy. There are quite literally hundreds of verses that mention joy. And in Hebrew and Greek, there are lots of words for it, lots of iterations of it, which can help us, I think, better understand it. And so let me shift gears by, I'm going to pull out just a few references to joy in the Bible, maybe helping us paint a picture of what joy really is. First, in the the Old Testament, Leviticus 9, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. They'd made a sacrifice to him and the fat portions on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted for joy. The word is ranan. They gave a ringing cry and they fell face down. Deuteronomy 16, for seven days, the Lord gives the instruction, for seven days, celebrate the festival of booths. He's talking about Sukkot. Celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy, sameach, gladness, your gladness will be complete. First Chronicles 16, Splendor and majesty are before the Lord. Strength and joy, kedva, rejoicing, are in His dwelling place. Psalm 30, For God's anger lasts only a moment, but His favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing, or joy, rena, ringing cry. It's the same root as the one we saw in Leviticus. Weeping may stay for the night, but ringing cries come in the morning. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy, simcha, mirth, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. And then Psalm 51, Confession of David. Let me hear joy, sasan, exultation. Let me hear exultation and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. See, in English, that's all just one word. Joy. just doesn't quite capture it, right? And so piecing these together, joy in the Old Testament, to cry out with gladness and mirth and exultation, hearts full. Look at all these different ways of understanding joy. (coughs) In the New Testament, there's a Greek word, agaliasis. it's a piercing exclamation, like a ringing cry. And this word is used in Luke 1, when Mary, the soon-to-be mother of Jesus, goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who's pregnant with the child who will become John the Baptist. And Elizabeth says to Mary, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Imagine that baby making a movement as if it was a ringing cry, a piercing exclamation. Imagine it. What would that have felt like? But by far the most common term for joy in the New Testament is kara, an experience of gladness. Kara. Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, in his gladness, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. He was so full that he he just couldn't do anything else. Matthew 28, after the resurrection, the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, kara, gladness. It says, actually, this is great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. John 16, Jesus says to his disciples, Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy, kara, your gladness, will be complete. Romans 14, Paul writes, for the kingdom of God, it's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy, gladness in the Holy Spirit. And then later to the Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, gladness, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And then James writes, consider it pure joy, gladness, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Kara, an experience of gladness in spite of fear, in spite of trials. That's the word that we find in Luke 2. The angel said, I bring you good news that will cause great joy. Kara megalein, great joy for all the people. Maybe, Maybe another translation might be, I bring you news so good that it will cause all the people to experience overflowing gladness. That's how good the news will be. There's a phrase in Psalm 51 that I didn't read earlier, but you may have heard it before. It's when David prays, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the gladness of being rescued, of being delivered, of being saved. That prayer uh, resonates with me. Maybe it does with you too. For David, he wanted the shame of his sin replaced with the joy, the gladness of knowing that God would save him from that shame and from that sin. I can resonate with them. Quite often, I need saving from myself, my selfishness, my own sin. Sometimes I need saving from the lies I'm beginning to believe, whether spoken out loud about me or to me or swirling in the air we breathe, the culture we inhabit. You are what you do. You'll never be good enough. You'll never be enough. You'll never be worthy of love. You'll never be loved. It's not worth the effort. Sometimes I need saving from cynicism, sometimes from bitterness, sometimes from being overly introspective, sometimes from not being self-aware enough. Sometimes it can feel like we need saving from people who seem like they're out to get us, Uh, a coworker, a boss, a rival we never asked for, maybe even a family member or a or someone who's making decisions uh, that affect our lives. Sometimes it can feel like we're stuck in a job situation we can't get out of, or we're stuck in a situation where we can't get a job. Sometimes it can feel like we're spinning our wheels when it comes to growing in our faith or maturing as a person as we seem to make the same mistakes over and over. What is it for you? What is it for which you're saying to God, whether explicitly with your words or in your journal or implicitly with your longings, with the aching in your bones, what is it for which you're saying to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation? What is it for you? What is it for which you're saying to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation? I want to know the gladness of being saved from this. I want to know the gladness of being rescued from this. Now, I was reading through a, a journal entry of mine from four years ago about this time, and, and I wrote, Advent, Christmas, and the end of the calendar year. These are all interesting times. They're full of conflicting emotions and thoughts and feelings. Joy mixed with sorrow. Resolution with, uh, clashing with regret. Memories of happiness wrestling with those of sadness. And I wrote, it's okay to be in that place. It's okay to to sit in that uncertainty. It's okay to realize that you cannot rescue yourself from the situation you're in. You cannot change the person who refuses to change him or herself. You cannot make everything neat and tidy and organized into little boxes as much as you may try. Because it often takes being in that place for us to cry out to God for deliverance. For us to realize how much we needed Jesus to come the first time. How much we need Jesus to come again and how much we need Jesus in the in-between. See, what was the cause of the great joy, according to the angel? What was the cause of the great joy? Good news. Gospel. Well, what was the good news? Luke 2, verses 11 and 12, uh, which Matthew will talk more about next week, so I'm gonna try not to steal his thunder. Uh, The angel said, to you is born this day in the city of David a savior, a Messiah, the Lord, This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. The good news was that rescue had come. The good news was that the Savior, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the long-awaited, silence-breaking, liberating, and life-giving Lord had returned. And He had come to be among us in the form of a baby wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. You know, after 2,000 years of, of Christian history, uh, it's really easy for us to just assume that, you know, the bands of cloth and the manger bed were, you know, typical signs of the Messiah. Right? You can imagine the BuzzFeed article, two surefire ways to know who the Messiah is. <laughs> but you know what they were signs of? Bands of cloth and a manger bed? Ordinary people. The people of the land. The poor. There's an ancient inscription that's dated back to the time of Jesus that was found in modern-day Turkey. It's written in Greek, and part of it reads, The birthday of the God marked for the world the beginning of good news through His coming. The birthday of the God marked for the world the beginning of good news through His coming. But it's not referring to Jesus. It's actually referring to Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor. It's that same word, though, euangelion, good news, gospel. It's the same idea of joy to the world. It's the same concept of a divine birth. Only with Jesus it was real. Do you see what God did? Do you see what it meant that God became a helpless human baby? born in an overflow room surrounded by livestock to a poor couple and was welcomed first by folks who occupied the wrong end of the social spectrum. This is where hope was born. This is the birthplace of joy because the, birth, this is because the, good, news, the good news is that God is with us now. Emmanuel has come. And God has come to make all things new, to right every wrong, to restore every broken heart, to turn the tables on the proud and the oppressor, to lift up the forgotten, the weary, the fearful, the hopeless, and the downtrodden, and to make right all that has been wrong. And he does it as one of us. He does it from among us. The story of the incarnation, the story of Jesus being born, of God coming to dwell among us is, what, is an example of what author J.R.R. R. Tolkien called a catastrophe. a catastrophe from the Greek, you, meaning good, like euangelion, good news, and catastrophe, meaning something did bad. <laughs> I mean, you all know that, right? But Tolkien defines a catastrophe as the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears sudden happy turn in a story that pierces you with a joy that brings tears. That's the story of Christmas. Dallas Willard says that joy is not pleasure, a mere sensation, but instead a pervasive and constant sense of well-being. Hope in the goodness of God is joy's indispensable support. Joy is a pervasive and constant sense of well-being buttressed by hope, reliant on God. And I think that pervasive and constant sense of well-being, that joy comes from knowing God is with us, from knowing God is with you. From knowing Jesus came to restore to us the joy of our salvation. And not just knowing that in an intellectual or a cognitive sense, but really knowing as in you know, trusting in it, acting as if it's true, resting as if it's true, living as if it's true. It's the difference between knowing that Jesus said, love your enemies, and actually loving your enemies. That's how I know that you know what Jesus was talking about. It's the difference between knowing the right things to believe and actually becoming and being the kind of person who embodies righteousness. It's the difference between knowing that God is with you, that the Spirit of God lives in you and is at work in you and desires to bless others through you and actually living that way. Living with a heightened God consciousness and a heightened others' awareness. So how do we keep vigil over joy? This is what one commentary says. Joy is a byproduct of life with God. Joy is a byproduct of life with God. Joy is not found by seeking it as an end in itself. It must be given by God. Therefore, it is received by faith with the gift of salvation, of rescue. In the Old Testament, joy comes with God's presence. In the New Testament, that presence is identified as the Holy Spirit. Joy is the most infallible sign of the presence of God. Now one way of interpreting that is to say if I'm joyful, God is there. If I'm joyful, God is there. So I must try to be joyful. I must try to find or create joy. But I I don't think that quite gets it. Instead, I think it's the other way around. Where God is, There is joy. So seek God. Become aware of God. And find joy there. In other words, we keep vigil over joy by staying close to God. We don't do it by running after every opportunity to create or manufacture that feeling in us. We keep vigil over joy by staying close to God. Now, I know that can seem like such a pat answer, such a Christian-y answer. But honestly, as I've sat with this and and wrestled with this, it's what I keep coming back to. God is the source and the foundation of joy. Joy is not happy feelings all the time. It's It's not contingent on your circumstances. It's being with God and knowing deep in our bones that we are secure because God is with us, because God is working all things for our good, because God is love and countless other truths about God that infuse and permeate the world he created. We stay close to God. We grow in our awareness of God, the source and foundation of joy. This is what C.S. Lewis wrote. If you want joy or peace or power, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. They're not a sort of prize which God could, if he chose, just hand out to anyone. They are a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you're close to it, the spray will wet you. If you're not, you'll remain dry. Once a person is united to God, how could they not live forever? Once a person is separated from God, how could they not? What can they do but wither and die Frederick Buechner put it this way, joy is home, joy is home. God created us in joy and created us for joy, and in the long run, not all uh, all the darkness there is in the world and in ourselves can separate us finally from that joy. Because whatever else it means to say that God created us in His image, I think it means that even when we cannot believe in Him, even when we feel most spiritually bankrupt and deserted by Him, His mark is deep within us. We are all image bearers of the Most High. We have God's joy in our blood. You have God's joy in your blood. We keep vigil over joy by staying close to God, by honing our consciousness of God in us and our awareness of God in others in the midst of conflict and chaos, in the midst of depression and doubt, in the midst of questions and quandaries, in the midst of drama and difficulty, in the midst of stupidity and selfishness, in the midst of tears and trauma. What the world needs, what we need, is not some flimsy form of joy, a rootless, shallow pursuit of the little things that make us happy, hoping that the next thing will take, the next thing will be it, the next thing will be enough. What the world needs, what we need, is the true, deep, life-giving joy that is grounded and found in the presence of God. That is an outgrowth of the Spirit in us, a fruit that is evidenced by the coming to earth of God in human form. Jesus, our rescuer, born in humility, born in poverty, wrapped in bands of cloth and laid in a manger bed. Bono, the lead singer of U2, in a letter he wrote uh, to accompany their latest album, he referred to joy as an act of defiance. Joy as an act of defiance. Or, as a friend of mine recently tweeted, joy is resistance. Joy is resistance. So practice joy this Advent, Christmas season. Practice resistance, practice defiance against the cynicism and the fear and the hopelessness we're all tempted to slide into. I want to give you two practical suggestions, two ways of maybe stepping into this. First, remember the good news. Remember the good news. Take a few minutes every day to reflect on, to listen to, to sit with God, the source of joy. Neuropsychologist Rick Hansen's research shows that um, the mind tends to be like Velcro when it comes to negative or critical thoughts, but like Teflon when it comes to positive thoughts, meaning we're naturally inclined toward negativity. It's why criticism stings so much and tends to stick around for so much longer. So sit with the good news. It takes a little more effort. It takes a little more intentionality. Cultivate the spirit of sitting with God. Re- reflect on the good news. Meditate on it. Maybe, maybe, you, maybe it looks like reading the, the nativity story again. Uh-huh. Maybe you know, reading different translations or reading the different gospels or sitting with the words of the angel. Do not be afraid. Just reflecting on those words. Reflecting on the words of Mary. Sit with the awe of the shepherds. Mary Oliver has this poem, and to quote a couple lines from it, the, the poem is called Don't Hesitate, and she says, if you suddenly and unexpectedly feel joy, don't hesitate. Give in to it. Don't be afraid of its plenty. Joy is not made to be a crumb. Joy is not made to be a crumb. Remember the good news. The second practice is this, be good news. This is not an either or by the way, they work in tandem. Be good news, be the reason for someone's joy, be an encouraging presence for someone who's down, be a healing presence for someone who's hurting, be a a presence period for someone who's lonely. Be a conduit of the blessing and presence of God to someone else. Maybe that will take the form of a thoughtful word or a kind email or or a card you write. Maybe that will take the form of an act of service this holiday season, helping someone in need, opening up your home to someone who doesn't have a place to go. Maybe that will take the form of something as simple as listening to someone who shared something hard, something vulnerable, and saying, I hear you. I believe you. I'm with you. Maybe it will come in saying, the world as it is is not all there is, and I'm going to live and work and give and love in such a way as to see God's kingdom come on earth as in heaven. Maybe uh, for some that will take the form of giving to the Advent offering. As we mentioned before, we're going to be giving to Little Lights, an organization that works with disadvantaged youth here in D.C. that has worked persistently and faithfully for twenty years that has kept vigil in our city, in our city, that has been a source of hope and joy and peace and love by being the presence of God in tangible ways. And we will be giving to y Esperanza, Peace and Hope, an organization that likewise has worked persistently and faithfully for two decades to fight for social justice for the poor and outcast in Latin America advocating for wholeness for individuals and for the systems and structures they inhabit. If you'd like to be part of our communal giving, like I said before, you can use the Advent offering if you're ready to give. Uh, you can fill out a pledge, we'll, we can send you a reminder, or you can just go online and give. And the offering is uh, it's just one small way in which we as a church, we as a body together, can be good news and support others who are being good news, who are keeping vigil. This month, my my prayer for us, this season of Advent, my prayer for you is that you keep vigil over joy by staying close to God. I know there's a lot going on, and it's a lot easier to worry than it is to rest. Take time to remember the good news. Take time to be good news. In this season of Advent, the season of waiting and anticipation, the season of keeping vigil, of keeping watch, of keeping awake, of staying woke, I want to close with a prayer that is a blessing for waiting. It's written by Jan Richardson. So as the band comes up, I want to invite you to close your eyes and to receive the blessing. Who wait for the night to end, bless them. Who wait for the night to begin, bless them. Who wait in the hospital room, who wait in the cell, who wait in prayer, bless them. Who wait for news, who wait for the phone call, who wait for a word, who wait for a job, a house, a child, bless them. Who wait for the one who will come home, Who wait for the one who will not come home, bless them. Who wait with fear, who wait with joy, who wait with peace, who wait with rage, who wait for the end, who wait for the beginning, who wait alone, who wait together, bless them. Who wait without knowing what they wait for or why, bless them who wait when they should not wait, who wait when they should be in motion, who wait when they need to rise, who wait when they need to set out. Bless them. Who wait for the end of waiting, who wait for the fullness of time, who wait emptied and open and ready, who wait for you. Oh, bless